Welcome to the Horror Babble Originals podcast. The Owl Man of Greenhill Coppice by Ian Gordon. Five. Mr. Winkler, whose doors were not yet open at eleven that Saturday morning, greeted Van Melsen and company with a great deal of enthusiasm. He ushered them into the empty bar area, where the three of them were invited to take a seat. Instructions were hollowed over a large shoulder towards what was clearly the kitchen, from which direction shortly followed the unmistakable sounds of food preparation, the sizzling of pans, and the opening of tins. "'You look famished, the three of you,' he said, as he added tea-bags to three mugs plucked from behind the bar. A kettle was immediately put into action, much to the pleasure of the survivors of Cuthbert the Cow's attack. "'So tell me,' Big Jim went on, "'what on earth is going on?' Clutching a mug in one hand, and an unlit cigarette in the other, Van Melsen proceeded to bring the landlord of the Breadwinner's Grotto up to speed. The acquisition of the book at Greenhill Lodge, the fate of old Blakely at Barker's Row, and the macabre encounter with an altered Mr. Baxter in Cardenham Woods. Big Jim, reaching for his own mug, a cup he'd not so discreetly added a shot of whiskey to, looked perplexed and deeply concerned. Maureen, he called in no particular direction. An answering grunt was heard followed shortly by the round face of Mrs. Winkler, who appeared at the serving hatch behind the bar. "'It's old Blakely,' Winkler said. "'He's dead. Cuthbert Baxter, too, by the sound of it.' Maureen, visibly taken aback, stood unmoving for a full ten seconds. Then— "'Should we call the police?' "'I'd recommend against that for now,' said Van Melsen, a serious look stamped across his face. It'll make it nigh on impossible to wrap this mess up efficiently with police officers crawling about the place. Believe me, I know. Jim? Maureen asked, seeking reassurance. Leave it for now, love, the landlord said, turning to Van Melsen. What was he doing at Baxter's in the first place? The investigator sighed. It's my belief, he said, that Blakely was attempting to undo his blunder. "'Takes a fair bit of experience to interpret what's written in that book, "'even when it's written in English. "'But as I explained to my friends here earlier, "'the old man was on borrowed time. "'He'd have never made it to Baxter's Hollow, "'if, after all, that was the man's ultimate destination.' "'Big Jim shook his head. "'You'll forgive me,' he said tentatively, "'if I say I'm having a bit of trouble swallowing all this. "'You're forgiven.' Van Melsen immediately responded, lighting the cigarette at last. As I said when we first spoke over the phone, this is the kind of thing nobody ever gets used to. The distinctive smell of bacon distracted the group momentarily. Mrs. Winkler returned to the kitchen to tend to it. The bacon's ours, Annie said proudly, referring to the family business. It's delicious. I bet it is, the investigator said licking his lips. Kane, still reeling from recent events, barked, "'I'm starving!' Big Jim chuckled at this, though the pallor of his face was still on the grey side. 
After a late breakfast consisting of bacon, sausages, eggs, beans, and two rounds of toast, Jim Winkler asked the obvious question. So, what now? Van Melsen, dipping up the remnants of bean juice with a corner of toast, said, I've some reading to do. Is there somewhere I can study here? Of course, said Jim. We have a couple of guest rooms upstairs. They're yours, all of you. Even you, Miss Palmer, if you want to stay among company. Annie, who had considered moving back to her parents' place temporarily on Willow Terrace, agreed to the arrangement, throwing eyes at Kane in the process. Another thing, the investigator went on. I see that it's uh, quiet on the streets. Is there a way to send word to the residents? I think it's a good idea for people to stay indoors wherever possible, at least for the next day or two. Yep. Big Jim said. Sally Relish. She's what passes for village mayor round here. I'll see she gets the word out. Keep the details on ice, Jim, Van Melsen warned. We don't want people running for the hills. Aye. Turning, the landlord grabbed several items from a drawer beneath the till. Here, he said, dropping five keys on the counter. Take your pick. By noon... Van Melsen was situated on the first floor of the breadwinner's grotto in guest room one, a couple of books, including Millith, laid out on the bed in front of him. He was tired, both mentally and physically. The situation in Greenhill Coppice had been above and beyond what he'd been expecting. In many ways, despite the general air of confidence that emanated from his sharp shoulders, the investigator was still a little wet behind the ears. He'd been a bookish character in the early days, consuming everything he could on the broad subjects of esoterica and the occult, from the writings of Trismegistus to Swedenborg and Seferial. He'd sought to understand the sources of all things outre, securing access to private libraries, attending the clandestine assemblies of would-be necromancers, all-night vigils in supposed haunted houses. It was this latter activity— that inspired a young Peter Van Melsen to call upon his years of research, and to offer his services to those in need of a confident man of occult knowledge, to help identify and, wherever possible, eradicate supernatural activity. Prior to October 3, 1986, his experiences had been relatively mundane, debunking hoaxes left, right, and centre, juvenile crooks and ageing attention-seekers. But in Greenhill Coppice, in little more than twenty-four hours, he'd crossed the hidden veil between two realities, twice, fled from and, on the second encounter, coerced a cow, those servile shapeshifters first whispered of in a much younger China. And he'd acquired a forbidden book, facsimile though it might be, with the power to subvert an extra-dimensional being. Yes, he was wet behind the ears— he felt it, too. His heart still raced in his chest, and he wondered if he'd ever feel calm again, despite his carefully conserved outward appearance. But now wasn't the time to dwell on mental and physical ailments. He was knee-deep in the Green Hill horror, and was determined to see it through to its ghastly climax. Van Melsen looked at the notes he'd taken in Baxter's Hollow, the words he'd extracted from the cow— 1. With Moonstone, summon the barn owls. 2. 
Grind mugwort, lavender, and yarrow. A portion must be sown. Three, with fire in belly, seek out lair. There can he return. Blimey, he breathed, his hands blindly seeking a cigarette. Lighting it, he opened his journal, a small brown leather notebook. In it were the notes he'd made back in the basement of Botman Books, notes pertaining to the very instructions he'd drawn from the cow. Inferences were made regarding the effect of the instructions. In the presence of Milleth, Van Melsen read aloud, one must make him uncomfortable, alter the environment, force him out, and steps must be taken to ensure he can't come back, for he continuously desires to. The investigator puffed on the cigarette, wafting the smoke from his eyes. He'd have to draw on his entire knowledge to work this one out. Outside, a light fog had settled over the village. Kane and Annie, superfluous for the time being, had stepped out for a breath of fresh air. Van Melsen had warned against them straying too far from the pub, and as such they found themselves on the steps of the market hall. Despite the mist, visibility was still good enough to make out the pub on the other side of the road, and the market hall itself sat at the centre of an open square. Unless Owlman swept down from directly above, and the thought had crossed their minds, they would see the threat approaching long before it could do them any harm. The two had sat in a comfortable silence for a while, before it was broken with a question. "'How long have you lived here?' Kane asked Annie, sitting very close to her on the cold steps. "'My whole life,' said the girl in the grey shawl, offering him a modest smile. "'It's a nice place. Monsters notwithstanding.' Annie smirked at that. "'And all because of a book?' she said, shaking her head. "'Hard to believe, isn't it?' "'Well, books are powerful things. I spend most of my time looking for them. You might say it's an obsession of mine.' "'Yes, but I doubt you'd knowingly go after a book like Millerth.' "'I think I would,' <laughs> he said without hesitation. "'But only to remove it from general circulation. To lock it away somewhere.' "'Really?' Annie asked, her eyes wide. "'You wouldn't be tempted to read a book like that?' Tempted, yeah, he said. But I like to think I'd be strong enough to resist that temptation. Annie grinned, and her whole face lit up. The ruby of her lips, the blush of her cheeks, the dark, curly hair that crowned her head seemed glossier, and her eyes, well, there are a thousand words to describe those boundless pools. Sounds like a lot of hard work, she said. Yeah, but some causes are worth it. Like your work here? It's not my work. Not really. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Annie's sapphire eyes widened. Really? She said satirically. Kane smirked, unable to prevent the flood of blood that rushed to his face. Maybe not, he admitted. Annie beamed. A broad, soul-stealing smile it was that... Unfortunately, it was quickly wiped from her face by the sound of a man screaming. "'It's back!' came the voice out of the mist. "'It's back! And it's taken Billy Berrycloth!' Moments later, Kane and Annie caught sight of a round figure emerging from Middle Street, directly north of them. The man, repeating his mantra, continued to the west along Bodmin Road, 
and hurled himself through the open door of the breadwinner's grotto. That's Michael Spinner, Annie said. He's the cemetery groundskeeper up at St. Bart's. These latter words uttered with a dawning realisation. Come on, said Kane, jumping to his feet. In a matter of seconds, the two were across Bodmin Road and by the bar at the breadwinner's, listening to the grim tale of Michael Spinner. It took Billy right in front of me, Spinner was saying, trying to catch his breath. Van Melsen, sharp as his shoulders, appeared beside Jim Winkler, the latter in the act of pouring a pint of bitter for the terrified man. It's okay, Mick, said Big Jim soothingly, sliding the glass across the counter in Spinner's direction. Take your time. Spinner sighed, taking a sip of the bitter to calm his nerves. I don't even know what Billy was doing up there, he said, his thoughts a jumble. I was walking along Church Walk, heading east towards the Lichgate, when I heard a muffled yell. The mist's lying a bit thicker up there, so I didn't see where it came from immediately. I ducked under the gate and followed what I thought was the sound of boots in the long grass. Turned out these were the flapping of wings, bloody great wings that I caught just a brief glimpse of between a group of stones. You know, the chest tombs by the entrance to the church. Spinner paused to take another sip of bitter. He was trembling now. I heard a screech then, a piercing screech that didn't do my ears any favours. They're still ringing now. Then more flapping, and a second muffled scream as whatever it was back there, ridden by the mist, took off. And I knew it had Billy in its clutches because he let out a third scream, and I recognised his voice. Help me, he yelled, before that great flapping thing carried him away, screeching the whole time. And that was it. Spinner fell into an apathetic stupor, no longer interested in speaking, nor sipping from the pint mug in front of him. Is that all, Mick? the landlord inquired, but Spinner just shrugged, mumbling something under his breath, something to the effect of, It's back. Jesus Christ, Big Jim blurted, curling his fists. Where do you suppose it's taken him? This from Mrs. Winkler, whose head was once more poking through the serving hatch. God only knows, Jim went on. Mr. Van Melsen? The investigator looked Big Jim squarely in the eye, nodded, then turned to Spinner. Mick, he began, using the name Winkler had used. His even tone seemed to rouse the disturbed groundskeeper from his reflections. Yes, he said with effort. Did you get any impression whatsoever of where the thing was headed? Ah, uh, I don't know. Think now. Did it fly towards the church or away from it? Ah, uh, I... Wait, yes, I, I think it flew towards it. You're certain? Not certain, but... I think so. Van Melsen nodded, turning to Kane. I'm developing a plan of action, but a few things will be required in order to proceed. Kane nodded, recalling vaguely some of the words spouted by the cow in the woods. Jim, the investigator continued, I need to get my hands on a few items. Such as? the landlord inquired. Mm, some choice materials. Is there an apothecary in town? Big Jim shook his head. Here, Maureen spoke up again. But Beryl Orton runs an apothecary in Bodmin. She's bound to keep some bits and pieces at home. Worth a shot, 
the landlord said. Annie, Van Melsen continued, do you know where this uh, barrel lives? I do, she said. Do you and Norman fancy running an errand? As it transpired, four individuals went out on errands. Kane and Annie went north to Cardell Road, and Jim and Maureen Winkler went south to Lower Millpool Road to seek out Barbara Wilkes, whose twice-weekly stall at the Market Hall was dedicated to the sale of precious gemstones. If anybody had moonstones among their possessions, it would be her. Meanwhile, Van Melsen would return to his studies, requiring, he said, complete and total isolation for at least a couple of hours. This was promised him, with Jim and Maureen's eldest son, Stephen, keeping an eye on Michael Spinner in the bar area. Other locals had drifted into the pub, too, and it was all the youngster could do to keep from spilling the beans regarding the abduction of Billy Berrycloth. A short time later, Kane and Annie, creeping through the fog like the ghosts of a dead village, found themselves approaching the vast residence of Beryl Horton. It wasn't like other dwellings in the village at all. Like the church, it was of brick, standing four stories in height, with numerous small dark windows decorating its facade like the watchful eyes of a fly. To Kane's mind, the Horton residence might once have been a mill-house or similar. Whatever it was, it was positively hideous in the clouds of swirling mist that surrounded it. It's a creepy old place, Annie said. But I can assure you, Miss Horton is a lovely old lady. Well, Kane replied, exhaling deeply. Let's see if she's got what we're looking for. The two approached the door, a heavy-looking affair with an ugly brass knocker. Kane knocked. A period of silence followed, with no signs of activity on the other side of the heavy door. Kane knocked again, and once more, silence pervaded. What do you think? Kane asked. Shrugging her shoulders, Annie tried the door. It was unlocked. Come on, she said, pushing the handle down the rest of the way. But if she's home, we'll apologise. Trust me, I know her. I don't think she'll mind, given the circumstances. Yielding, Kane followed the headstrong girl into the shadowy hall that awaited them. Hello? Annie called, the word echoing throughout the sparsely furnished space. Miss Horton? Kane felt that creeping dread again, the same sensation he'd felt earlier when the voice had whispered in his head. Somehow, he just knew without a doubt that Miss Horton wasn't home, that she hadn't necessarily left her abode by conventional means. Annie, he said, little more than a whisper. Let's just find what we're looking for and get out of here. I've got a bad feeling. Annie nodded, saying, Right, I know what you mean. Miss Horton's house was even more peculiar on the inside. This, Kane hoped, being the result of the lady's eccentricity, as opposed to old Blakely's meddling with Millith. Have you been here before? Kane asked. I've been to the door but never inside. This wasn't the answer the young man was hoping for. He was looking for reassurance, not more uncertainty. And into the heart of the house they went. In guest room one of the breadwinner's grotto, Van Melsen's plan of action was nearing readiness. Without the choice materials, the whole thing would be futile. 
but he was confident that the items required would be sourced that very afternoon. Described as the gemstone of inward vision, the purpose of the moonstone, ostensibly, was to provide a means through which to communicate with a variety of owls. Further study of Millith revealed that shapeshifters such as the Owlman are repelled by appearances of the animals they mimic. So, if Greenhill was to receive a visit from a suitably large parliament, the being might be temporarily restricted to his lair, wherever that might be. As for the elements to be ground into fine powder, the mugwort, lavender, and yarrow, this particular combination of constituents would also be repellent to the entity, providing, if sown or sprinkled in the correct place, a barrier through which the owlman would be unable to penetrate. And then, like Annie the night before, and Cain that very morning, Van Melsen became aware of a faint whispering in the back of his mind. He recognized the voice as his own, but it felt separate to him, ghostly. Listening very carefully, the voice seemed to be urging him to approach the window, that what he saw there would not be a familiar street scene, but something happening elsewhere in the village, something involving— But the voice faded to inaudibility. He didn't catch the end. He climbed to his feet and turned to face the small sash window. Indeed, it was immediately obvious that the aperture was no longer a window overlooking Bodmin Road, but a view of something gloomy and forbidding. He approached the dusky panes, and cupped his hands about his face in order to get a better look at what lay beyond. From above, he saw a network of tunnels, a veritable labyrinth, with floral wallpapered walls, reminiscent of a bygone age. Through these tunnels, like mice in a maze, wandered two individuals, instantly identifiable as Norman Cain and Annie Palmer. "'Norman!' Van Melsen called, rapping on the glass. He tried to open the window, but the sliding sash was immovable. "'Annie!' His calls fell on deaf ears, as did his knocking, which had increased in intensity now, owing to the presence of a third individual roaming the corridors, a much larger individual, all silhouette, with what appeared to be lowered wings at its bulky sides. It was a furtive beast, gliding along like a puppet on a conveyor belt, closing in on the investigator's companions a tower of intent. "'Norman!' he called again, positively pounding on the glass now. "'Annie!' But it was no use. The glass was an impenetrable veil, whose sole purpose was to provide a viewing portal, and nothing more. Van Melsen knew better than to yell their names a third time, and instead spun on his heel and took off at a run. "'Where's the Horton house?' he demanded as he reached the bar area, startling the young Winkler boy. "'Ah, uh, it's—' the boy stammered. "'Never mind that. Just take me there. Now!' Cain and Annie were well and truly lost. They'd found what they were looking for almost immediately— in a cramped room connected to the main hallway, a cabinet of drawers labelled A through Z had provided everything they sought, neatly packaged in small round tins. Grabbing as much of each as was available, they turned, feeling rather pleased with their unlikely fortune, and stepped back out into the sparsely furnished hall. But it had 
changed. The main door through which they had entered the house just wasn't there. Instead, they were standing in what appeared to be an endless tunnel, with numerous passageways leading off into further vagueness along its length. "'What?' Kane began, only to give up. Annie seemed to realize what had happened instantly. "'It's like the tunnel between my house and the lodge,' she said. "'We're in the fringe again.' "'Shit,' Kane blurted, unable to stop himself. "'What do we do?' Annie's head bobbed from side to side as she surveyed their surroundings. We do what everyone should do when trapped in a maze. We stick to the left and keep moving. What? Kane asked. His brow creased. The girl in the grey shawl clutched Kane's hand and dragged him forward a few steps. From there on, Annie led the way through the wallpapered warren, sticking like glue to the left. The passages were unchanging, each the same as the last— interminably long and littered with openings, the geometry of the place completely out of whack with reality. I'm not sure the left hand rule is going to do as much good in this place, Kane said, his voice a quiver. Then Annie stopped abruptly, shushing him. Kane raised his hands questioningly. Annie put a finger in the air and whispered, Listen. Kane listened. It took a moment, but then he heard it. It was a rustling sound, like the distant approach of a hundred foil packets, sharp and incessant. What is that? Cain mouthed. The look on Annie's face told him that he didn't want to know. Whatever her sapphire eyes had discovered, the young bookworm had his back to it, and it was advancing at speed. Suddenly, Annie yelled, Run! And they took off at a rate of knots, in a straight line along the unending tunnel, all the while hounded by the weird crackling of foil packets. Kane couldn't recall the last time he'd ran like this. Had he been a boy in secondary school, forced to compete in the 200-meter sprint against his will? Perhaps he'd have been a better runner, if the soggy old weather pitch had played host to something vast and strange— a thing that squawked as it slithered along, waving unseen appendages like so many toy rattles. The thing that only Annie had seen was closing in. Kane felt the heat of its breath at the back of his neck, recognized the flapping of wings now, the furious convulsions of a feathered head. His female counterpart was much faster than him. She was several strides ahead now, on the verge of vanishing in the perpetual gloom that lay ahead. What would he do if she disappeared completely? What fate would await him if she left him alone with this looming menace? Cain didn't get to find out. Annie, her mysterious motivation still the source of sleepless nights some thirty-odd years later, slowed to a trot, made a semicircle, and launched herself at the advancing threat. "'Annie!' Cain screamed, coming to an abrupt halt. But the girl with the sapphire eyes, and the thing that had pursued them, were gone. The hall in which he found himself was the simple, sparsely furnished affair into which he and Annie had stepped less than an hour before. All that remained of the butcher's daughter was the grey shawl strewn across the floor. Cain collected it. Standing at the front door— backlit by the luminous fog without, was the investigator, the young Winkler boy at his side, both of them panting. 
The look on Van Melsen's face said everything. It took her, he said between breaths, eyeing the shawl in Kane's hands. Kane nodded, his mouth agape. Absent-mindedly, he tapped the bulging pocket of his raincoat and said, quite robotically, Well, we got what we came for, at least. 6. Saturday, October 4th, 6.15pm In the relative safety of the breadwinners, a group of locals flooded the bar area, their eyes and ears fixed upon a statuesque figure behind the bar. Van Melsen, lost for words in the presence of so many eager comers, looked to Jim Winkler, who stood beside him. "'Now then,' said the landlord, clapping his giant hands together, "'this here is Peter Van Melsen. At the end of the bar there,' he added, pointing to a forlorn-looking character, "'that's Norman Kane.' These two gents have come a long way to aid us in this thing, so I'd appreciate it if the lot of you could hear them out. We want rid of this thing, don't we? This last comment resulted in a series of grunts and nods. The weary folk of Greenhill Coppice were ready to see the last of whatever it was that was plaguing them. The floor's yours, said Big Jim, inviting Van Melsen to address the concerned residents. I'll get straight to the point. The investigator began, raising the copy of Millith in the air. This is the reason you've a beast among you. Old Blakely was merely a pawn, a man manipulated by forces beyond his reckoning. Forces? came a voice from the crowd. What do you mean, forces? I mean to say that Blakely's acquisition of this book led to the arrival of a terrible menace— a creature whose sole purpose is to take you, one by one, back to its own domain. Mark my words, it will continue to prey on you until this village is a ghost town. Why? came another voice. Was he down with berry cloth? And Baxter, for that matter, yelled another. Look, said Van Melsen calmly, I'm not here to answer such questions. I'm here to assure that this thing goes back to where it came from. To speculate regarding the fates of those taken would be a waste of time. Here, Cain looked up, his thoughts awash with visions of Annie Palmer, disappearing in the blackness of that inexplicable labyrinth. "'What are you going to do about it, then?' was another outburst. "'It's my belief that this thing, this owl-man, has established for itself a nest of sorts in the vaults of St. Bartholomew's Church.' Gasps were heard. The cemetery groundskeeper, Michael Spinner, listening from the back of the crowd, looked up and shuddered. Then a man sporting a clerical collar stepped forward. I think you may be right. It was Father Stuart Redknapp, St. Bart's vicar. Just this afternoon, he went on, I caught a whiff of something putrid radiating from the vaults. I know what's been going on recently— but I couldn't believe that an incursion on the church was a real possibility. Well, I descended the steps, there in the vestry, noticing immediately that the flight seemed to descend much deeper than it should have done. Recalling the talk of strange expansion throughout Greenhill Lodge, I took my leave, despite my commitments. Could it be that this thing has a bone to pick with our lord? The owl man dwells below, said Van Melsen. 
The vaults are simply a convenient subterranean location. I presume there's external access, too? Yes, answered Redknapp. There's a flight of steps by the rear crypts. Then that's how it's been coming and going, the investigator concluded. With that in mind, but Van Melsen was interrupted by a series of shouts, followed by the arrival of a young man. Quick, outside, screamed the teenager. It's back. Come and see for yourselves. Like water rapidly draining from a lock, groups of frantic villagers poured from the breadwinners and fled across Bodmin Road to the market square, where the teenager now stood, pointing and yelling. Following the boy's gaze to the north, dozens of eyes traced the rooftops of Middle Street and Cardell Road, climbed the grass verge that rose at the back of the village hall, and landed on the looming façade of St. Bart's, its single rose window, the eye of the church, gazing back with a fear of its own. Under clear skies atop the church, straddling the ten-foot cross at its apex, squatted something terrible. Jim Winkler saw it, as did his wife and son. Michael Spinner was there, too, the reassuring hand of the vicar on his shoulder. Barbara Wilkes saw it, and trembled from head to toe. Norman Kane saw it, and Peter Van Melsen saw it. It was Millith, a giant, feathered man with a pair of wings and the head of an owl. But it was more than that. In the swiftly diminishing daylight, there was a translucency about it, a wraith-like quality that suggested the creature wasn't of this world, that it wouldn't ever be of this world, despite its dreadful presence and the tremendous power it commanded over the populace of Greenhill Coppice. Its wings were broad and white, angelic of themselves, dramatically contrasting with that appalling oval-shaped head, the deep red eyes of which scanned the gathered crowd with quiet hostility. And though the long body of the beast was undoubtedly shaped like a man's, there was something immensely unsettling about it, as though even from the quarter of a mile distance from which the onlookers observed it, the trunk was queerly a-quiver with a life of its own. The notion of safety in numbers held the crowd together, an intangible feeling that seemed to prevail in the end, for after an untold number of minutes, which might have been only a matter of seconds, Millith withdrew from its lofty perch and swooped away into the shelter of the woods to the north. Following the public spectacle, Big Jim and the sort of mayor, Sally Relish, eventually succeeded in convincing the majority of the onlookers to head home, to lock themselves away for the night, and to sleep wherever possible, in groups. Those who lived alone sought the company of neighbours, with only one or two particularly stubborn individuals choosing to ignore such recommendations, insisting that they weren't afraid of no big fellow with wings. In relating his plan— at least as much of it he felt was relevant to share, Van Melsen insisted that only a select number of people be in attendance. So it was in Winkler's back room at the Breadwinners that Kane, Big Jim, Relish, and Father Redknapp listened in rapt silence to what he had to say. "'I am by no means certain that this will work,' Van Melsen said, "'but it's my duty to at least give it a try. There are a number of stages—' each of which is fraught with potential complications, 
but I'll spare you the specifics for now. Just know this. The first stage, involving a chant and a precious stone, will be carried out this evening by the brook. Please, and this he added, with a very stern expression creasing his brow, do your very best to keep it dark. At nine p.m., Van Melsen, with a noticeably subdued cane at his side, approached the edge of Greenhill Brook, accessed through the beer garden at the back of the pub. Jim and Maureen had been fortunate enough to retrieve three red moonstones from Barbara Wilkes, all of which the investigator now clutched in his lean hand. "'There'll be time later,' Van Melsen said, looking at the young man sympathetically, to reflect on what happened to her. Kane nodded, well aware that his despondence could have a detrimental effect on proceedings. "'I know,' he said. "'We've got a job to do here. Let's do it.' The ritual was a simple one. With the moonstone submerged in flowing water, three words were to be spoken aloud. "'Here goes nothing,' Van Melsen began, his inexperience at last apparent to Kane. Crouching, he plunged his closed fist into the water, and muttered, Noctur, Terori, Milleth. Cain stood by, waiting for something to happen, knowing very well that the summoning would take time. The investigator climbed to his feet. We should head indoors, Norman, he said, shaking a wet fist. If this doesn't work, we'll want to be inside, though with those cows haunting the borderlands of three-dimensional reality, I— I'm not sure we'll be safe anywhere. But Cain had nothing to say. After what had happened to Annie, anything was possible. If nothing else, the pair needed a good night's rest. With or without the aid of their summoned nocturnal friends, it would be necessary to descend into the vaults of St. Bart's on the morrow. A few hours later, with a couple of minutes left on the clock prior to midnight, Cain, who lay atop the covers in room two, wide awake, his eyes fixed on the oblongs of streetlight decorating the ceiling, became aware of a light tapping sound. It wasn't at all like the knocking that had roused him at the lodge the night before, the fateful rapping that had introduced him to the now-missing butcher's daughter. No, this was much lighter, and it was a tapping against glass, not wood. He sat up on the bed, and craned round to look at the window. His searching gaze discovered a heart-shaped head looking back at him, the unmistakable face of a barn owl. It had come to Cain, tapping away at the glass with its short beak. The young man, like one in a dream, climbed from the bed and approached the window. He slid the sash across, and dropped to his knees in front of the midnight caller. "'Hello?' he said dumbly. Strange though the circumstances were, it was unlikely that the bird would return his greeting. Instead, it simply shrugged its wings, and continued to stare at him, unblinking. Are you answering the call? But the pale owl, its mean inscrutable, remained still and indifferent. Cain watched the bird, was quietly fascinated by it. He'd seen owls at sanctuaries, caught glimpses of them disturbed by the headlights of cars, but had never sat face to face with one of its own volition. Was it of its own volition? 
or had Van Melsen's summons cast a spell over the hapless creature? According to the investigator, the purpose of the summons was to infest the area with owls, to make the village inhospitable to Milleth. But this owl had knocked at the window. This owl had remained at the window after Cain had greeted it. There was something special about this little fellow, if fellow it was. Let's call you Odie. Kane said, in response to which the little barn owl shrugged its shoulders again. I see you approve, he added, chuckling to himself. And then Odie hissed, which, to Kane's mind at least, sealed the deal. I can tell we're going to be fast friends, Odie. Kane remained there by the bird for what felt like a very long time, an hour or more. Odie, whose name Kane had plucked from the word Odyssey, was a calming presence, a presence that served to remind the young man that every horror, be it supernatural or otherwise, was matched by an equivalent delight. With Odie at the window, his next attempt at sleep was much more successful. Meanwhile, across the hall in room one, the paranormal investigator was lost in a haze of thoughts, sat by the window, looking not upon a strange labyrinth, but quiet Bodmin Road, the dock-end of a player's cigarette hanging from his bottom lip. At least, he pondered, the arrival of the barn owls, if the summons were successful, would serve to nullify the incursions of the cows, drawn as they were, by the presence of their would-be master. Van Melsen's mind was awash with appalling imagery. The elderly lady of wood behind the wardrobe at Greenhill Lodge— the translucent skin of old Blakely at Barker's Row, the image of Cuthbert Baxter, a mere sculpture forced to yield its secrets, and Milleth himself, or the form in which Milleth had chosen to assume, the very form that would, with a pinch of luck, be the creature's undoing. From where the creature came, Van Melsen could only surmise— based on the numerous clues present in the small book Blakely had so greedily acquired in Ilfracum. In describing Milleth's reality, the writer of the book, the mysterious Montaigne, had conjured up a curious allegory. We occupy but a page, went a paragraph on the subject, in the book of reality. Other realms are close at hand, separated by little more than a whisper. Milleth knows this, and, countless eons ago, sought to discover a means through which to conquer those whispers, so that the crossing from one reality to another was as simple as putting one's foot through an open door. Why is it, Van Melsen muttered to himself, that only the malevolent forces of other realities seek to penetrate into ours? But the desolate road outside failed to offer an answer, nor did the dead cigarette butt which now fell to the floor. The investigator ignored it and threw himself onto the bed. Unlike the young bookworm, Van Melsen would get very little sleep that night. Sunday, October 5th, 7 a.m. When the investigator made his way downstairs that Sunday morning, his eyes bloodshot with great black rings surrounding them, he found himself drawn to the smell of bacon on the grill. He followed the scent into the dining-room, where sat Kane, opposite Big Jim, Maureen, and young Stephen. 
Seeing Van Melsen enter, the landlord sent his boy off to the kitchen to fetch what had been prepared for the man. Van Melsen took a seat next to Kane, and poured himself a cup of coffee. "'Sleep well?' Big Jim asked. "'So-so,' the investigator returned, sipping the coffee. "'Tell him about your visitor,' the landlord continued, looking at Kane. Kane, who at that moment was working his way through a substantial sausage, nodded. Ordy, he said between bites. What? Van Melsen begged. Ordy, Kane said again. My old friend. Arrived last night. Spent the whole night perched on the window frame. Still there now as far as I know. The investigator's eyes widened, both in response to Kane's admission and the fact that Stephen Winkler had just returned to the room carrying a full English breakfast. Two rashes of bacon, two fat sausages, two fried eggs, a smattering of mushrooms, a portion of beans, half a tomato, and two rounds of brown toast. Thank you, Van Melsen said as the plate was placed in front of him. A conversation ensued, in which Kane spoke of his feelings concerning his nocturnal friend, of how the creature instilled in him a sense of calm, and, more than that, a sense of optimism. The investigator went on to say that the arrival of Odie would certainly hail the advent of further owls, creating precisely the atmosphere in the village necessary to keep Millith from venturing outside. For a short time, at least, he added cautiously, dipping a slice of toast in the yolk of a fried egg. We must take advantage of the situation by striking while Millith's suppressed. He must be forced to return to where he came from. What about the missing? Maureen put in. Can we expect anyone to come home afterwards? Van Melsen shrugged his shoulders, shooting an apologetic glance at Kane in the process. I'd like to think so, he said guardedly. But the truth is, if the case of Cuthbert Baxter is anything to go by— the damage is likely to be irreversible. A cool silence followed, permeated only by the sounds of eating and drinking. It's going to be a long day, Big Jim said, breaking the silence. And it was, for the vaults of St. Bart's couldn't be entered prior to twilight. Time had to be allowed for the owls to arrive, and with perhaps the exception of Odie, the birds wouldn't show themselves in broad daylight. After breakfast, Van Melsen was introduced to Odie. He was immediately taken by the owl's unusual temperament, and fascinated by its apparent attachment to Norman Kane. His eyes are glued to you, the investigator observed. Her eyes? Kane corrected. Odie's a female. Oh, my apologies, Odie, Van Melsen offered. "'What do you think it means?' Kane asked. "'At a guess, I, I'd say she's a warden of some kind.' "'A warden?' "'Yes, a guardian, sent to see that we find our way.' "'To the vaults?' "'Through the vaults, I suspect. "'Do you think you'd have found your way out of that wallpapered maze "'if Annie hadn't sacrificed herself?' "'I guess not.' "'And here Kane seemed afflicted by a horrible realisation. Does that mean Audie will have to sacrifice herself too? Van Melsen shook his head vehemently. I'm not saying that. I'm just guessing here. It's my belief that Odie will serve as a guide of sorts through the vaults, to see that our efforts aren't in vain. That's all. 
Kane nodded thoughtfully. Listen, the investigator said, I know this whole situation is, well, beyond anything either of us could have imagined, but I'm absolutely convinced that we will succeed today. Call it a feeling, intuition, whatever. One should always trust that inner voice. Once more, Kane nodded, thinking back to the inner voice he had heard the day before. That monotonous voice, spouting an unintelligible mantra, producing images of an oppressive passageway and dissonant roars. If he was to trust that voice, then something truly horrible loomed on the horizon, something even more terrible, perhaps, than what had happened to Annie in the wallpapered maze. Van Melsen and Kane shared a look then, a look coloured by unspoken worry and bewilderment. They talked enough. They knew what lay ahead. The rest of the morning and seemingly distant afternoon would be spent in quiet contemplation, a silent rehearsal, if you will. It was Odie who had the final word, a quiet shriek that, given what lay ahead, sounded like a warning signal.